Hello, and you're listening to EcoJustice Radio from the 90.7 KPFK Studios in Los Angeles, California. Our show is brought to you by SoCal 350 Climate Action, presenting environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. My name is Jessica Aldridge, and today Carrie Kim will be talking to David Lamfram, who serves as the director for the California Desert and National Wildlife Programs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Using his passion and knowledge for our natural, cultural, and historical resources, he inspires others to learn about and protect our national parks. Published both as an author and wildlife photographer in several issues of Wild South Magazine, David is an avid hiker and photographer who spends his time exploring wildlife and wilderness. We are glad you could all join us today for this interview. You are listening to EcoJustice Radio. Aloha. My name is Carrie Kim, and we're here with David Lamfram, Director of the California Desert and National Wildlife Programs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show again tonight. Nice to be back with you, Carrie. Hope you're doing well. You too. Well, it's been a long, uh, long year for you working with the national parks. We're grateful to have you here with us again tonight. Thank you so much for your dedication to conserving national parks and all of their inhabitants. You know, there are over 400 parks spanning approximately 84 million acres, and your job is essential for all of us. I wanted to begin by honoring also the First Nations who came before national parks ever existed. I want to acknowledge that and recognize that our national parks exist upon the original ancestral territories of Native peoples. So, David, the first question I have for you is the shutdown you know, many people have heard horror stories about vandalism and the negative impacts to many of the parks during this uh, recent extended government shutdown. And we're wondering if you can share more with us about what the impact has been in California and, and elsewhere. Well, I'm happy to. And Carrie, first, let me just say thank you for the acknowledgement. I, think that's, I just think it's really important that we all recognize that there were people here before. Hmm. Um, we got here. And so... Um, I appreciate that. In terms of the shutdown, what we experienced was it was just kind of it was remarkable in in good and bad ways, and it was really something like an experiment where you have people who are traditionally used to having visiting national parks and having a very particular type of experience, and that experience is you show up and you go to a visitor center, you learn about the place. You get maps. You talk to rangers. They mm-hmm. tell they talk to you about how to responsibly recreate in that place, how to experience that place. Mm-hmm. You may during that during the day that you're there, or the time that you're there, or during your camping trip, you might you know have a number of different um, encounters with rangers. And by and large, you have kind of interpretation guidance for you while you're having that experience. Mm-hmm. But 
during the shutdown, the parks remained open, and while they remained open, there was a you know anarchy. A lot of, <laughs> there were a lot of issues, right? Mm-hmm. There were some of those issues were that um, there weren't just the basic services being provided, and by and large, I think people tried really hard to recreate responsibly in the national parks, but that uh, a lot of things that really mattered also got hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can say from firsthand experience, I visited Joshua Tree National Park a number of times, and during my visit, during my visits, I saw ancient plants being trampled, people uh, walking off of established trails, and um, you know, compacting wildlife habitat. I think which was a really big issue. People driving off of the main roads and creating new roads. Mm. And in when that was happening, in some cases, people would parrot that behavior. Because they, they assumed if one person was doing it, it was okay right. to do. Yeah, so then it made it exponential. And so, mm-hmm. so there was actually, you know, I think in some cases, some of the damage was really significant and serious. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, especially in a place like the California desert, when you talk about trampling a plant, you look at the plants and they are relatively small and, and humble looking, but those plants can be thousands of years old. Mm. And so um, what is the timeline for the replacement of a plant like that is thousands of years. So it's a geological time frame. But beyond that, and on the more hopeful side, Mm -hmm. communities pulled together in a real way to try to help and support the national parks. And um, I'm grateful to the people in the California desert for really for creating, I think, real community um, and really caring about and trying to protect the parks during the shutdown. There's a lot of people that came out to volunteer, yeah, on their own. Yeah, they came out to do that, but they—I mean, there were people who came out and cleaned toilets, mm-hmm. and there were people who came on who actually hired trash services to come out and pick up trash, and mm-hmm. um, was really—I think it was a really encouraging sign of humanity during a very difficult time for the national parks. Absolutely. And you know, I think a lot about the national park rangers. So you have these employees who have dedicated their lives to protecting these places, the people who know these places the best and who care about them deeply. Mm-hmm. And they're on the sidelines, right? Right. They're sitting at home, not getting a paycheck, during the busiest time of year for Joshua Tree and for the other desert parks, wishing that they could be there to connect with people and to educate them about this place and to connect them to the place. Yeah. And then basically knowing that that place is being harmed. Because of mismanagement, right? Because Mm -hmm. of an unnecessary government shutdown. Yeah, completely unnecessary. And then, like you said, as far as geologic time, you don't, you can't just uh, create a a thousand-year plant or thousands-of-year-old plant overnight. It just you can't. At that time. So, could you speak about more, a little bit more about this? Also, the the damage that going off trail causes, because that's something that. uh, You know, I read in one of your recent posts that even the most well-intentioned person doing that, they just not maybe thinking about it deeply enough as to the repercussions of that? Well, and, and, you know, when the reason that I frame that as, well, you know, well-intentioned is that I just think about that that kind of like the energy, because I, I know as a person who I really love national parks, and in, even in my spare time as a wildlife photographer, I spend a lot of time in national parks. Mm-hmm. And I know the excitement I feel when I'm planning a trip and I'm getting ready to go, and um, I'm so enthusiastic about what I might see, the experiences I might have, and the ability to be in just like the privilege of being in such a beautiful, of being in these beautiful places. 
Like, I really look forward to it. And so um, I imagine that there are people who had been planning for, you know, for some cases it may have been weeks, months, years, or especially for our international visitors, mm-hmm. it may have been the trip of a lifetime to come out to the California desert. Yeah, what a shocking time. And, right? And then they show up and they just want to walk around and experience and enjoy that place. And they don't know about the, especially without the ability to visit the, the visitor centers and to learn about the place. Right. They, don't, they may not understand the fragility of yeah. that landscape. And so they're walking across country off trails and they're, they're walking on these, this, you know, these living soil crusts mm-hmm. um, and breaking those or crushing small plants or walking on a desert tortoise burrow or walk, walking on a kit box burrow. Oh. And um, they don't mean to. And I don't think that they would if they knew. Sure. I think that they most, by and large, people really are there because they want to connect with that nature, mm-hmm. right? Not harm it. Absolutely. So to me, there was that bitter irony. Yeah, and especially because, who, yeah. you know. Well, especially because the parks are so dedicated to educating the visitors who come there. That's such a huge part of the national park experience, I would say. But, I mean, you could imagine if you were a visitor and you saw a desert kit box or you saw a desert tortoise, it might be one of the highlights of definitely of your experience, but maybe of your your year, right? It might be something that, you know, people have a, especially now, um, people are hungry to have experiences and connections with the natural world. Absolutely. And so that could have been a really pivotal experience for somebody. And I think if, if somebody knew that they were unintentionally crushing the tortoise burrow or a kid fox burrow, it would probably, they really would want to not do that. Well, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, I you know, I read that the parks already had about an $11 billion backlog for maintenance pre-shutdown. So, you know, it's, it's shocking to hear about just having to divert, say, entrance fees towards post-shutdown remediation that wasn't even necessary in the first place. You know, how can we, given this, you know, how do we support and help sustain the park system? knowing that they are so underfunded, I would say, across the board. I mean, that's just my perception. I don't know if you would agree. No, I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a fact. The park service, you know, the Understood. parks are huge economic drivers. They create, you know, they support communities. They create businesses. Mm-hmm. And especially in the California desert, our, you know, our, our communities are intricately tied to our national parks, and people come from all over the world to see them. Yeah. And despite the fact that they are, providing so much benefit to communities mm-hmm. the you know the congress has historically done a poor, has not done the right job of funding these parks and they have every reason to do better yeah. um, wasn't it beyond because, just also funding the but, but funding the actual the maintenance you know the long term maintenance of these parks once even they're established having our national parks is a huge net benefit not just not just culturally not just not just for us to be able to tell the stories of our nation, which is incredibly important, mm-hmm. um, even in, in some cases a difficult history. Yes. But economically, the parks are a huge benefit to local communities, and so it's really just a smart investment. So we should absolutely, Congress should do the right job of funding these parks, and you know every dollar that they put in, you know, is gonna is gonna come back into that economy How much in, a, in a really, in a real insignificant way. Uh, you know, pro- I'm sure you probably know these figures. 
you know, how much really funding to parks has been slashed over the years or a period of time? I mean, what are we really talking about? Well, I mean, we're, you know, when that, I think that, that figure of $11 billion, billion dollars for the backlog, I, I mean, that speaks to it. I mean, that's not, and that's, that's not all just on right. the maintenance side, right? Like right. that's, you know, that's not even operational. So, um, but, but I know in the last, you know, in the last 10 years that I've been working on these issues, you know, we've seen those budgets go up and down, but the, the difficulty is that the national park budget is based on a yearly appropriation. Mm-hmm. So we're not planning out deep into the future for I the see. parks. Mm. We're taking it on a year by year basis. And when you're doing something, when you're, you're appropriating year by year, <clears throat> it makes it a little bit harder to plan for the for the long run. So is that and one of the fundamental... Big, and to get big things done. Is that one of the fundamental changes you think is necessary, is to change that to be long-range planning or longer range? Well, well I think that, the, I mean, that's just how funding for public lands exists right now. Mm-hmm. But I think that because of the importance... So one thing, if you look at the popularity of national parks, it's in the... When they, when they poll it, it's in the 90 percentile. So roughly 90% of people in this country support national parks. Sure. So even if we know that it's a yearly appropriation, there shouldn't be a year where national parks aren't, aren't given the basic funds that they need to be successful mm-hmm. because it's such a smart investment for us. So, Well, and if not for national, think, yeah. yeah we, I don't think we need to change the appropriations process. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to change our commitment to fund these places. Mm. Right? It should be there, really, there, I mean, there should be, it should be clear to everybody who's who's voting on these issues that national parks are a priority. The American public has said so. That's a nonpartisan issue. Um, it's one of the it's one of the things that's truly great about our country. Yeah, one of the significant things. I, you know, despite the fact that we have this backlog and the parks, even the existing parks are underfunded. To me, it seems we still should be dedicating more wilderness to conservation, and and on a mass scale, but. I don't know what your feeling is about that because we know that animal habitat, biodiversity, all these things are being eroded, and and yet in this current administration, it seems like this may be the first time that we actually see a decrease in uh, the park system. I mean, what what is your feeling about that? I don't know that I see more lands being dedicated under this current administration. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Eco Justice Radio coming to you from the KPFK studios in Los Angeles. Well, you know, I, I I think that I have I have some real bias here. Mm-hmm. I've been a you know in my career I've been a wildlife biologist and I've dedicated my life to the protection and conservation of animals. So um, I tend to think we need to have a lot more um, conservation lands. I also think that um, it's important for people to remember what places were like. And so if you live in a place and you don't have a representation of what that habitat was like before, you don't it's very it. easy to erase our our history and our connection to the land. Well, you had a recent... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you had a recent article that you posted that mentioned that conservation depends on connection, not just protection. Yeah, well, I mean, well, so firstly, I mean, I, I think about, um, you know... The reality is, is that the door swings both ways. There are places um, where we're rapidly losing, and I think on a whole, we're rapidly um, industrializing our mm-hmm. planet. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I, on a whole, I think we're losing habitat in a very significant way, and we're losing species in a very significant way every day. Yes. I think that on, at the same time, there are places now that are better protected now than they were 100 years ago. There are forests that were cut down that have grown back and that okay. are providing habitat. Mm-hmm. There are people and projects that are working day and night to plant trees. Mm-hmm and to recreate habitat. There are species that are recolonizing Mm -hmm. places that they haven't been in 100 years or 200 years. And so there's there's still, in my mind, a lot of hope. Well, and, and, you know, can you speak a little to E.O. Wilson's Half Earth Project and what you feel about this dedicating, you know, basically half the Earth's land and marine mass to conservation, to preserve biodiversity? I had the ability to work in a tangentially with E.O. Wilson, he um, he wrote a beautiful op-ed about a, a solar project that I was fighting in the Mojave Desert oh, the that was going to cut off wildlife habitat for the bighorn sheep. Yeah, please tell um, us more about so, that. Yes. And so, I, I mean, I had, I've had the opportunity to, in a small way, uh, work with him on one wildlife project, but uh, I think the reality is, is that I just think it's a noble goal. I think it's also difficult to really to think about how we get out in front of that so to, to think about what it would take to build the to build the will and then for there to be equity for people who are in really different uh, economic situations in the world mm-hmm. to make sure that people have what they need and that people recognize that for us to live and be healthy and and have you know to live on this planet, sustainably and for the long term, that it's going to require that we stop industrializing the planet. And, you know, the, you know, the richer nations in the world, the first world nations have, have gathered a lot of the benefit from the industrialization and a lot of the resources from that industrialization. And it's tough for me intellectually to wrap my head around telling other countries that they don't have the opportunity to pursue that same type of agenda. Yeah. Well, we basically exported that <laughs> around the world. Right. right? Well, we, we did, and but there are also there. That's not the only way, right? We know mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But we, I would also just say that, just in terms of equity, you know, I do I do really feel that that other nations have the right to pursue their their own their economic well being. I also think. It has to there be balanced. Are, there are huge shifts coming with climate change, and um, we understand that you know that's going to disproportionately affect different um, mm-hmm. those, especially in low-lying areas and mm-hmm. coastal cities around the world, right? And mm-hmm. those who have the least resources will have the least ability to to be to create a life and a lifestyle that's resilient. Right. The people who get displaced, yeah, the people who are so, displaced as a result of all right. this industrialization. But mm-hmm. but I I can tell you I don't. I don't want to live in a world where I can't fish, and I don't want to live in a world where, um, where you know, there's mass, mass, um, like, redistributions of, of people, people who are basically becoming climate refugees. And mm-hmm. Well, and also I, I we think, think pe- about the animals. The, the I people mean, are starting to wake up and see that yeah. these changes are happening, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I think of the animals, we don't often think of the animals also being climate refugees as well, that they are also going to be displaced and how that's impacting where they will have to go because their habitat is being eroded or destroyed. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, and thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that's the basis of so much of our work in the California desert because 
we understand that if we can protect and connect these landscapes, these larger landscapes together, then that's going to give species the best opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, to, I want to... Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Bye. Well, I wanted to ask you, in the rush to scale up renewable energy as if it's the grand solution, which, you know, partly it's a solution, but also we have to talk about the consequences of that. And when you were talking about the Bethel project, the solar project, you know, dealing with habitat loss and impacting animal migration patterns as well as genetic diversity... You know, also trespassing on native lands. You see a lot of these big projects trespass on native lands. So, you know, I'm wondering, how do we ensure that renewable energy projects for wind, solar, geothermal, at utility scale, are properly sited? Because it seems that the system doesn't quite support proper siting now. Even with EIRs, we know that EIRs don't always serve their purpose. No, I mean, it's a really important question. And... um it's it's difficult to find so it's difficult to find a location that's appropriate for renewable energy um, because I think people want to believe that there's just empty space. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is no such there is no right. such thing where inhabitants are not already there. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> right. Oh, and that so that it's not important to wildlife that it's not important to people that um, that it doesn't deserve to exist because it always has. Right. Everything is an ecosystem, right? Every single thing on the planet is part of an ecosystem. So, it, but, and, and so, you know, when, um, when I started working on renewable energy policy, which was in 2008, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, really like a solar gold rush in the California desert. And, <sighs> you know, the way that we framed it, which I think, you know, I think this, the state of California has come around and, the federal government maybe is coming around a little bit more slowly, is that we really wanted to prioritize putting those projects. So we said, yes, we want this, uh, and we want this to be deployed at a, at a mass scale. Mm-hmm. But we want to start with the low-hanging fruit. So let's prioritize using landscapes that have already been mechanically altered mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before, we, before we start using landscapes that are pristine. Yes. And without because, man's intervention right, already. Because from, from our perspective, that was a simpler way to build consensus mm-hmm. and also to acknowledge that we need to move forward quickly. Because mm-hmm. if the alternative is fossil fuels, right, mm-hmm. we don't want to be making a choice that's promoting fossil fuels. Right. It's delicate. Because and that hurts, right? All, all the options hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, Every if every not, option has if consequences. You're not wisely, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's really important what that that article that you had posted mentioned about considering de- development in context of overall ecosystems versus versus creating fragmented islands. You know, where we chop up the natural habitat with development. And I, I read that you know even in Yellowstone Park back in the seventies, you know, it lost diversity because it was not connected enough to surrounding nature. Yeah, I mean, I, the, what you're saying is so important, and so there, there are rhythms. There are rhythms and movement that occur, and in, in ancient places like the California Desert, for example, mm-hmm. those patterns are exceptionally old. So the migratory path of a bighorn sheep does not understand state lines nor mm-hmm. political boundaries, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They recognize steep cliffs, river systems. Like, as we're thinking about a how we want to start doing conservation moving forward. I mean, we've really been focusing on trying to understand how ecosystems work mm-hmm. and protecting ecosystems themselves because 
if you protect a thousand acres, mm-hmm. it, it could either be really effective or really ineffective, depending on how you draw those boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the migration patterns and the way the animals are moving through the land, right? Depending on what you're trying to protect and how mm-hmm. you're trying to protect it, mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not recognizing those natural boundaries mm-hmm. and the pieces of that system and what is needed seasonally mm-hmm. for species, then it could it could be less effective than it would be if you were thinking about it that way. It's such an important topic, David, and thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I want to to ask you, what did we miss? What do our listeners, in our conclusion, what do our listeners most need to know about our parks right now? I mean, if you had one message to send to them, what would it be? I'll I'll send a couple. So, you know, I'm I'm grateful to your listeners for all the good that they're putting out there in the world. Thank you, and um, please don't lose hope and continue fighting. Um, We have a lot. We have a lot of hope, and we have a lot to fight for, and we're winning a lot, too. It's good so to hear the encouraging please news Please don't lose you. sight of that. Mm. But I would say about the parks, you know, one message is, you know, if you the next time you see a national park ranger, you know, thank them and recognize that shutdown was, was probably really difficult for them, too. Um, I just think about these, these people who, you know, they didn't decide to become bankers. They decided to become park rangers. They devoted their life, um, yeah. Yeah, to knowing and caring for these places. And they are the stewards of some of the most important places in our nation. And, um, yeah, they're guardians. I know in having private conversations with a lot of park rangers, it was a very difficult time for them, not just financially, but um, to emotionally. Witness, yeah, to witness what they to did. Know, yeah, and to know that, you know, and to this day we're still trying to, I mean, we're just still trying to figure out what even happened, what yeah. the full impact um what the full tally of impacts are mm. um, from that shutdown. So that's a message that I would send out there. You know, create some space in your heart for the park rangers, and this is a really good time to go and visit support and support the, our national parks. Support park. the parks and donate to the parks too. Yes, absolutely. Just in in take care of take care of places and people that you care about in the best ways that you can. David, how can is there a link or resources for listeners to be actively involved with the parks that you suggest that they connect with? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, my organization, the National Parks Conservation Association, we do, you know, we do the advocacy to fight to protect the national parks. And uh, our website's www.npca.org. And um, you can also support smaller community organizations, like many of the national parks have their own friends groups. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good And they're suggestion. excellent organizations and, and very much deserving of support. Thank you so much, David. Listeners, you can also connect with David Lamfram on Facebook. He's often putting up posts that are very important to our national parks and preserving them for future generations. So thank you, David. We hope to have you come back on the show again. And thanks for also sharing that there is encouraging news so that listeners continue and that all of us continue in supporting and helping to preserve Mother Earth to the best of our abilities. We're friends and I'll be back. Thank you, David. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. This is EcoJustice Radio coming to you from the KPFK studios in Los Angeles. I want to thank 
David Lamfrom for coming on to the show and our host, Carrie Kim. You have been listening to Ecojustice Radio brought to you by SoCal 350 and 90.7 KPFK. The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at SoCal350.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Eit, engineer Blake Lampkin, and interview hosted by Carrie Kim. Original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.